Tobias, did you start your podcast yet? No. Okay. I haven't managed to. Um, I don't know. I'm just I'm being lazy and depressed. Okay, that sounds good. Let me ask you some flashcard questions. Okay. So you're a 25 year old woman, still going to college. All right, you're 25 and you're still going to college. But yeah. You have a reason. You have a reason. It's because you work two part time jobs in order to get by. Okay. Mm -hmm. You work at a convenience store as a cashier at night, and during mm -hmm. the day you serve at a fine dining restaurant. Okay. Your younger brother has been on life support for over a decade, but he's in a vegetative comatose state. Your okay. mo your mother takes out money from loan sharks and gangsters to support the medical bills for your veg vegetable younger brother, but these gangsters come and harass you for loan payments, all right? At home, you accidentally shut the window on your fingernail and it's severely damaged, all right? So you wear a Band-Aid over it, but while at work at the restaurant, you were serving a plate, but the plate was hot and you flinch while delivering the food to the table because of the pain in your finger. And the mm -hmm. manager sees this, so he mm -hmm. pulls you aside in front of all of your coworkers. He rips the Band-Aid off your finger, and it's so painful that you yelp, and he screams at you in front of everybody who's watching. What do you do? I, oh my, I probably would have killed myself after hitting my fingernail in the window because that's the worst possible part. It's, I had, I just, I hit my, just, it's on my middle finger too. Jesus Christ. I hit Christ. My, my middle finger against my bathroom storage thingy and it just tore, like it, it tore it away from the flesh and I was Oy. bleeding under it. I was ready to, if I had had a dead, uh, a vegetable brother <laughs> and a loan shark addicted mother <laughs> and two jobs at that moment, I would have, I would have killed myself. Um, so I, kudos, kudos to 25 year old college <laughs> student me for making it through that and <laughs> living to tell the tale. But it's um, the fingernail thing that that really pushes you over the edge. That would have broken me. It's the mo it's the worst. I mean, it's I don't think getting stabbed or shot can be as bad. Can feel as bad as hitting your fingernail in anything. In anything. Yeah. Okay, Tell me about like, that window. What is it a soft window? Is it wood? Is it metal? It's a sliding window made of fiberglass and wood. So No. It had some no. weight to it. Can't do it. Can't okay. do it. All right. I know you have to go to work soon, so let's get through this. No, I, I checked my schedule. It's fine for a while. Oh. And now right. I need I need a nap after this, after thinking about this fingernail <laughs> anyway. Sorry. Um also when you were when you were flashing me your middle finger, I didn't see anything wrong with your fucking finger. So I'm pretty sure there was nothing wrong with your goddamn finger. You just wanted to give me the at this point, it just looks like there's a little bit of little bit of dirt under my fingernail, which is oh, what okay. it could be. Who knows? All right. Okay. So you're this. You're the same twenty five year old woman. Okay. Yeah. The boss, who was screaming at you, okay, he the same night 
the same day that you know he screams at you, he takes you out for dinner and drinks at a really nice like sushi restaurant, okay? okay? And while pouring you a drink, he tells you that he grew up poor too and that he had to take care of his family from a young age. He tells you that he understands a person in your position and that you know he had to do his job earlier, which is why he screamed at you in front of everybody. And then while taking you home in a cab, during the cab ride, he touches your leg mm-hmm. while telling you big life lesson stories. What do you do? Um, I, this is not what you want to hear from me, uh, but I'm not a woman. I'm not offended by a man touching me. I shouldn't be. I can, I, you know, I don't need to, I don't need to feel like I'm being sexually harassed because I've probably, I've probably given him hints that I want it, that I want it. I have been, uh, <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm setting back homosexuals <laughs> and women's liberation by several. Okay. All right. Okay. As long as you acknowledge that. That's stuck inside for, I've been stuck inside for a year. Yeah, uh, without and and most part of that without the touch of another human being. Uh, <laughs> okay. But I mean, he's an asshole. But it wouldn't be the first asshole that uh, you know mm-hmm. I've engaged with physically. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Let me try to imagine I'm that. I'm that 25 year old woman. I would take, I would, I don't know. I would, do I still have the band aid on my finger? Is it gone? Is it back? Your, on? your wound is still there. You just don't have the band aid to protect you anymore. Just put, he put that off. finger, shove it in his nose or his net mouth or his, his eye or something. Jesus. Pretend that's my fetish. <laughs> <laughs> That'll get rid of him, I'm sure. And he will never flirt with me again. And I think he will treat me kindly at work because, like, he would be too embarrassed to yeah. ever. He, he's not going to, like, go around and tell the other co-workers, oh, I had to fire her because she shoved her bloody finger in my nose. So she's not, he's not going to fire me. So he's going to keep me there. I'm going to go back to work. Everything's going to be perfect. Problem solved. Yeah. Okay. I actually really like that answer. It is the craziest answer I've heard in a long time. And, um, you know, when a person is acting inappropriately inappropriately towards you you should respond with an inappropriate response so i like that one welcome it okay okay that's a good idea yeah Yeah. i like that okay all right so you're a college girl Mm -hmm. um not the 25 year old you're like you know in like maybe 20 years old you're Mm. very pretty you're like a pretty young lady okay you're into handbags you're into makeup you're a girly girl all the stereotypical girly girl shit like that's that's what encompasses you and you have a boyfriend he's Mm -hmm. handsome but he is such an asshole okay for instance when you go over to his house just to say hello and check in on him he immediately tries to have sex with you and when you tell him that you're on your period he gets annoyed with you and says then why the fuck did you come over what do you do we gotta have the talk you know the the talk about is this a relationship or are we just fucking there's no i'm sorry there's no creative solution to it you just gotta have it you just gotta i mean it's awkward it, i mean he's your boyfriend you guys are committed well, to clearly each other. not i mean he's <laughs> he only wants to his only reason for meeting me is having sex with me mm. i've been mm. in a 
situation like that and i asked i asked the guy uh wait mm. are we dating or are we just fucking or are we just friends and he refused mm. to have the conversation <gasps> um so we just kept doing the same thing because i was too chicken to you know end it. what is this what's going I agree. on i agree yeah and yeah and uh thank you for bravely sharing that very vulnerable story Um, I think all of us have, have been in that kind of situation, you know, I myself have had a bunch of those and uh, it is the most stressful thing to be in those ambiguous relationships mm. that are like emotionally complicated. It's so fucking tiresome and God almighty, I am never, ever, 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 ever going to get involved in an ambiguous bullshit like that ever again. It's just yes. not worth it. It's yes. not worth it at all. If you're right, both, sweet. you know, on the same side and both agree that you're just fucking, it's fine. Mm -hmm. But yeah, if you have you, that you clarity, have, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But when they're the not clear, shit. oh, okay, sweet. All right, so you're the mm. same college girl, right? That same girly mm -hmm. girl with the asshole boyfriend. One day, you're at a cafe with your boyfriend, and he's like sulking in his seat, looking like he's in a real bad mood. He's not saying much. So you ask him, what's wrong? And then he fucking snaps. <laughs> he loses his temper and he starts yelling at you. And he says, why did you have to tell people that you go to a better school than I do? Huh? Like, why are you always showing off to the world that you go to a better school than me? And then he just walks away. And then he ignores your text messages and your calls for like weeks. Something ridiculous like that. What do you do? I mean, stop texting this douche. Also, <laughs> I think he's he's gay. I mean, <laughs> that is the most dramatic, the most dramatic situation <laughs> that you've ever described to me. <laughs> also, when you said he snapped, I thought you meant he literally snapped his finger. Like, How dare you tell people you go to a better school than me? That's probably what it is. So yeah, I mean, forget about this dude. <laughs> Is this the same guy who wants to keep fucking you? Yeah. Oh, it's because he's like he's like trying it out. He's like he can't make up his mind. Is he into you know? Is he is he into girls or is he into boys? That's why mm. he's like just like keep keep going at it, keep going mm. at it. Yeah. No, this dude. I mean, forget about him. Okay. It's, yeah. All right. You're right. That is the right move. Okay. So you're the same girl, same college girl. Okay, that same asshole yes. boyfriend. All right. So you you muster up the courage and you break up with your boyfriend very maturely, very amicably, okay? It was a mm -hmm. very difficult decision for you because you loved him, okay? He was your man. You loved this mm -hmm. guy, but you know, you 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 realize that you have to take care of yourself so you end things, all right? And you're very proud of your decision. But one day, just out of nowhere, you're just minding your own fucking business and uh a a stranger kidnaps you okay and uh <laughs> when you wake up and open your eyes you see that you're bound and gagged okay and mm -hmm. the person who did this is your fucking ex-boyfriend of course right? he is <laughs> you're bound and gagged in his apartment mm -hmm. and he tells you how rude you were to break up with him and then laugh at him condescendingly with all of your friends And uh, he leaves you bound and gagged in his apartment like that. And um, when he's home, he, like, beats you repeatedly, 
All right. And when he gets drunk, he starts crying hysterically and he says how, you know, what he's doing. He knows what he's doing is wrong, but he can't stop himself. You know, he in fact, he sexually assaults you while admitting that he has these problems. And you're you're all tied up. You're tied up and yeah, and uh, you're immobilized and you don't have your your cell phone anywhere. What do you do? The fuck is wrong with you, Grace? What, is... <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? What do I do when I'm? being kidnapped and tied up and abused and beaten how do you get out of this predicament oh my god i don't know i (laughs) i what does one do i I (laughs) there's no good answer to this if you're if i'm giving an answer then i'm victim i'm victim shaming the people who've been kidnapped (laughs) and didn't didn't do that same thing no you're not i mean it's just a hypothetical I assume I assume I would start with screaming. Hopefully, <laughs> I mean, if I was in this room, my neighbors would start call the police because they can hear everything <laughs> I do. I can hear my I can hear my neighbor behind this wall. I can hear him snoring at night. That's how thin these walls are. So um, that's <laughs> that would be for my first choice. Um, if that doesn't work, I mean, I I don't really have another. I I would I guess you would have to try to trick your the the ex into um into like like make him believe that you're really into this you regret everything you've done you're gonna be you're gonna marry him you're gonna be his faithful loving wife okay. and so he, he, he you know he 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 loosens the ties he mm-hmm. lets you go he's mm-hmm. drunk you can uh fuck this bitch up you can just beat him oh, over the shit. head and be done with it um in that case let's just wrap this up because i think it's still Shit, never fucking never mind. <laughs> Welcome to K Drama School. I'm your host, Grace Jung, and class is now in session. technical difficulties at the end of my flashcard series with my guest co-host Tobias Hauser. Uh, Thank you, Tobias, for answering these flashcard questions. I really loved your answers. I needed the laugh. I was having trouble on my recording platform, Iris. Uh, That's actually a platform that I've been having trouble with um, for a while now and iris was finally after weeks of me following up with emails able to answer uh with some suggestions to resolve my problem hopefully it won't be an issue during this recording session but man oh man did iris fuck up two huge interviews no three three interviews were fucked up thanks to iris and uh i left um, the other platform I used to, I used to use Riverside FM and they were about $10 more expensive than Iris and they definitely fucked up some big time interviews a lot. Um, but you know, it's like, it's one thing to mess up as a service, but then it's another to have shitty customer service, right? It's like, okay, like your, your platform has problems. We can figure it out, but if your customer service is shit and they there are no solutions, then I got to leave you, right? I mean, I gave them four months of my time 
and I was just like, it's, that's it. That's it. I can't do this anymore. So I went to Iris and uh, Iris also has some issues with customer service, but thankfully they are a bit more responsive than Riverside. Ultimately, you guys, if you're doing a startup, okay, fine. You're good at programming. You're good at this and that, whatever, but you really have to hire a separate team to handle customer service more properly. Okay. Because you guys, you fucking tech geeks and dorks are the worst at handling customer service. So hire people who are good at that. All right. People who worked in the service industry, people who have handled customer service before and pay them handsomely to be able to handle that because wow, paying for a monthly service and not getting the service that you need. I mean, that is the most frustrating thing ever, right? Above, uh, right below my neck and just before my shoulders. And she was like, got it. And you know, she was like, working that area and she told me she's like yeah like your left side is worse than your right side and I mean I don't know she was amazing so I'm definitely gonna go back I'm definitely gonna work with the same therapist and yeah if you're not getting full-bodied massages I recommend them I recommend them at least once a month you know or once every three months I think it's a great way to um, sort of reawaken your body because uh, there are a lot of things that our bodies are just tied down to right like gravity for one and our chairs for another my gosh you know I forgot how much sitting I do in LA I just got back from New York and uh, the moment I got back I was immediately hit with all this reservoir of pent-up feelings um, mainly sadness and anger that I didn't realize that I had in there but it was just like just lying dormant the whole two weeks that I was in New York. And then as soon as I landed in LA, the morning I wake up, boom, I'm like hit with it. It just all came rushing right back. But um, the the adjustment back into LA has been all right. It was a friend's birthday. So I went to his party yesterday. We hung out. We, you know, he had a, he had a fire pit in his backyard, which was amazing. Uh, so I got to smell a little smoke, which was nice. Uh, there was pizza. There were tacos. Um, I brought ice cream sandwiches, you know, those Toll House cookie sandwiches. I initially wanted to bring him an ice cream cake, uh, but for some reason, neither Walmart nor Ralph's had ice cream cakes. And I was like, the fuck is up with that? So I was like, what's the next best thing? I mean, obviously a cookie ice cream sandwich. Like <laughs> you can't, I mean, that's the best one. That's the best. So um, I brought those. That was a big hit at the party. Uh, I bumped into a fellow Berliner. Um, how, do, how do you call it? Like, I don't know. Like, like a friend of mine put it the best way. He was like, Grace, you're like a fake Berliner. I was like, yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. I would say she's also a fake Berliner. Uh, she's Australian, but she goes to Berlin often and stays there for, you know, long periods of time, similar to me and I saw her at this party yesterday and I was like of course I'm seeing you at this party because like of course and it was nice catching up with her Uh, a lot of my friends are out of town this weekend that's a weird thing just all at once everybody's out of town they're in like DC they're in San Francisco they're like all over the place so I guess this weekend is the weekend to travel Um, I am going to be traveling again next month. I'll be in Boise, Idaho and probably Oregon. I'm not sure yet. I really have to see, but you guys, I'm, 
I'm going to be back on the road again real soon. Um, I'm going to be in North Carolina in September doing uh, shows as part of this comedy festival, the North Carolina Comedy Festival at Greensboro. And I'm really, really looking forward to that because, man, it's 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 really it really sucked like not being able to go up on stage uh, when I was in New York. I was hitting the mics pretty hard and that was great. It was great to be able to just hit mics and just you know get some stage time i was able to do one showcase in queens that was a lot of fun uh the one great reassurance that i got is like i'm not afraid of cold rooms you know like that's like the biggest reassurance that i got like something i really learned about myself like i'm not afraid of cold rooms anymore this queen's bar in Astoria, it was like a dead cold room, like maybe eight people on a like Saturday night, you know, and they're like they want to be somewhere better, um, or or they they're exactly where they want to be, but they just want to have a great time because it's a weekend night, and uh, the comedians were struggling. About five comedians went up before me, and all of them, all of them struggled, and they all shit on the on the audience members, and I was like, that's no way to behave. You know, don't say that the audience is shitty if they're not laughing. And that's not to say that some audiences aren't shitty. Some audiences are shitty. They are. But even if they are shitty, that's it's still your job as a comic to get them to warm up. And there are ways of working that, you know, working that out. And I just realized, like, I'm not afraid of taking that on. I just, over the years, I just figured out how to do it. And, like, I'm not afraid of them. When I was doing a mic in Queens, again, this was in Astoria. I was staying in Queens. So I was doing like quite a few um, Queens mics and shows. Uh, there was another audience. I mean, she's, I, I guess she's not even an audience. I mean, this was a, a mic. And this was just like a random woman at a bar on a Tuesday night. She was shit-faced, okay? It was like, it was like 9 p.m. And she's like hammered. And she would not stop heckling the comics. And you guys, it's one thing to heckle at a show, but it's another to heckle at a mic where comics are there working shit out, okay? They're working. Like, I don't come to your job and shit on your desk, do I? So when I'm on stage and I'm trying to work shit out, don't come and shit in my mouth, which is what she was doing. She, like, stepped on so many punchlines with the previous comics. And when she stepped on my punchline, I was like, no, like, not having it, right? And this was, like, a bar room, like, one of those, like, old school divey Irish bars and it's like, that's, that's my kind of room. I love those rooms. Right. And, you know, I just let her have it. And everybody in that bar w went buck wild. It was like a great feeling. So I had a great time in New York. Um, I, I learned a lot about my friends and myself. Um, actually, uh, today's guest, LJ Kim or Yichun Kim, he is, um, a brother to one of the friends that I was visiting in New York, uh, upstate. Um, she's a professor at the university of Toronto in art history and she's, uh, amazing. Um, and you know, she, like she and her, her younger sister, Miru, like, like the, the Kim siblings, like they're just, you know, friends of mine. I've known them for like 10 years now. They're all really good people. Um, they're all, they're, each of them are very, very different from one another. 
And, you know, I used to think that they all looked different too. Like, Ichung Oppa doesn't look anything like his older sister or his younger sister. The two sisters look very similar. But then, when I went upstate this time and I looked at Seung Jung Anni, she looked so much like LJ Oppa. And I was like, oh my God, like the three of them actually look very much alike. <laughs> They're like, Oh, they're like triplets. They look very, very similar now. That was interesting, kind of seeing their similarities. And like when I was watching Sung Jung Ani just like in the kitchen, because she was making me udong, she was like cooking for me. And she reminded me so much of her younger sister, Miru. Because like I've seen Miru in the kitchen a lot, because Miru's a great cook and she's always cooking for friends. And just the, her movements and her gestures, like they were so similar. You know, as sisters, and that was fascinating to witness. I was cat sitting while I was in New York. I was cat sitting for、uh, Mia Wang's cat. If you guys don't know Mia Wang, look up her films. She she makes amazing movies. She did Beijing Taxi. She also did Mainland. Both of them are amazing. Both of them won big awards. Check them out if you haven't seen them. Uh, but I was taking care of her cat, who's this like fourteen year old giant long haired cat, like white and orange. And I mean, he's. He was a handful. He was definitely a handful, but、um, I kind of miss seeing him around, you know, because, you know, like cats are very beautiful, like creatures, you know, they're very, like, how do you say? They're, like, very prudish, you know, they're very proper, like the way they sit and walk. It's, like, got such,、uh, I don't know, they're so savvy in their movements. And I was just like, wow, like, that's actually kind of pleasant to look at. And I don't have that now, you know,、um, I'm, I'm looking at my money tree that's dying, and、uh, that's, that's what I have to stare at all day. But you guys, let me talk about the fucking K drama that I'm going to be talking about today. It's called Hello My Twenties,、um, also known as Cheng Chun Shide. It's a JTBC K drama written by Park Yeon Sun and directed by two people, Yi Tae Gon and Kim Sang Woo. I don't know them, but there you go. It stars Han Ye Ri. Han Yeri is, of course, very well known for the film Minari, in which she plays Monica, right? The film by Lee Isaac Chung. And、uh, if you guys want to know my take on Minari, just go to my website and look up Meditations on Minari.、Um, and this is where I can tell the difference between who is Korean and who is Korean American. Because all the Koreans hate this movie. Right? Even, even diaspora Koreans who've been living in the United States for a long time, their reception of Minari is it's, not, it's like a, a student film. It's like subpar, low quality, lo fi. It lacks substance. You know, like the Korean Koreans just hate this film. But the Korean Americans love this movie, right? The Asian Americans love this movie. And that really goes to show you how deprived the Asian American community members really are in this fucking country. I mean, we, we're being handed like a slipper, like just not even a pair, just one slipper. And we're like, thank you. Thank you for these shoes. My God. And we're like kissing the feet of whoever handed that shitty slipper, like Brad Pitt's feet, right? I mean, this was. Fucking produced by Plan B. Brad Pitt, we're kissing, we're licking Brad Pitt's toe fungus and saying, Thank you for giving us a single slipper. It's completely useless, but thank you for these shoes. We're going to treat them like the Monalo Blonics. But here's the thing, guys. I. I, I would say I, I straddle both areas. Like I say, I'm very Korean. I'm also very Korean American. 
um, I see from both perspectives. So when I look at it from a Korean lens, yeah, this is a shitty movie. <laughs> this is a very lo-fi film. Yeah, it feels like a student movie. I don't, I don't blame the Koreans, okay? Steve Yun's Korean is awkward, all right? Steve Yun did not go to Kunde, so he does not come off as this macho, Korean, middle-aged Korean-American ajashi who is feared in the household, right? I mean, that's what Steve Yun's role was supposed to be. But then, from a production standpoint, I also understand that without Steve Yun, this production never would have happened, all right? Steve Yun was the powerhouse that made this movie come to fruition i know this right because he's the star he's the power but then again from a korean american standpoint like when i look back on my korean american experiences this film is like dead on dead on dead on there's so many moments in that film where i'm like i recognize this moment i recognize it and lee isaac chung was very very like attuned to that and he brought it out beautifully so from that perspective, right? I'm just like, this film makes sense. It does deserve the accolades that it's getting. But it's a very specific and nuanced kind of accolade from a Korean American standpoint. And I don't believe, I do not believe for a second that Hollywood understands why they're giving this film all the credit that it's getting. All right? I think Hollywood is you know, doing this conflation thing where they conflate Korean Americanism with Koreanism. Like, it's just, that's what they're doing. They're sort of still riding that parasite wave from last year. The other thing is, of course, like Yoon Yeo-jung, right? Yoon Yeo-jung was fucking phenomenal in this movie. I mean, she is a goddess. She's an untouchable goddess. And, you know, this film should be grateful for having her. Brad Pitt should be licking off her toe fungus, okay? Like, I mean, she's the master, all right? Like, Brad Pitt's got nothing on Yoon Yeo-jung. Anyway, that that was a big distraction. This uh, show, Hello My Twenties, also stars Han Seung-yeon, or Seung-yeon from Kara, right? I think Seung-yeon is not recognized fully for her talents, but I think she should be. She's a very talented actress. Seung-yeon had a very brief cameo appearance in that Korean drama Star in My Heart, which I talked about on this podcast. She played one of the orphans at the orphanage that was like waving goodbye to Chae Jin-shu's character in the pilot. I thought Seung-yeon was fantastic in this show. And then you have Park Eun-bin, who is... I mean, she was really the heart of this show. Like, she was sort of the glue that held this group together. Park Eun-bin plays Song Ji-won, and she was just, like, fantastic on this show. Like, I loved her personality. I loved how hilarious she was. She killed me. And then you have Ryu Hwa-young, or Hwa-young. You have Hwa-young from that group, uh, Tiara. And her acting was also quite impressive. She plays a bit of a... I don't want to say controversial. I mean, she plays basically a sex worker. um, And I thought that was a bold decision, you know, to have an unapologetic sex worker in a show. Right. But then uh, later on, that sort of changes. Like, I mean, she goes through a change. And I mean, her narrative actually in this show was a bit weird. I don't know how I feel about it. Um, I'd love to hear from you guys and what you think about it. And then you have Park Hesu, who plays Yoonje. And I thought that was, I thought her role was fantastic too. But unfortunately, okay, very, very unfortunately, this show has a season two. I don't know why they did it. They should not have done it. K-drama people, don't do season twos. Just don't. Just don't. You guys, just don't do them. Like, 
Why, why change something that's been working? I mean, like, stop. Stop doing season twos. A lot of your shows that you sell to Netflix kind of suck. They don't deserve season twos. Uh, this show should not have had a season two. Okay. The worst thing that they did for season two was hire to replace uh, Pak Hesu with another actress named Chi Woo. But Chi Woo was playing uh, Yoonje. Like they were just going to pretend like they didn't swap out an entire character with a different actress. And that was very jarring. Uh, Chi, like they didn't even find an actress who was anywhere close to Pak Hesu. I guess that's impossible to do, right? Because if you have two different people, they're just going to play two different characters. This character sucked. Like Chi, <laughs> Chi Woo's Yoon. Yoonje sucked in season two of Hello My Twenties. I do not recommend season two of Hello My Twenties. Don't watch it. If you loved f- season one of Hello My Twenties, just preserve that beautifulness um, and that experience. Don't watch season two. Season two sucks. I love this drama because it addresses so many very real issues that young women go through in their early 20s, right? So this is focused on college women. Um, a few of them are like from out of town, like they're not soul lights per se, uh, but they're kind of, you know, making it on their own in the city. And they, they, this show focuses on very nuanced things. For instance, the girl who plays like Yoonje, like Unje's character, when she first moves to Seoul from her countryside area, she initially, she's like very fearful and anxious, right? Like she's just not used to that fast-paced urban life. She's not used to speaking up. She's very timid, very quiet. And uh, as she's commuting to school and as she's adjusting to the roommate life with her housemates, she's like just, you know, encountering all this like invasiveness, you know, personally and mentally, emotionally, and she can't speak up, right? So what ends up happening is she starts to get like become more of a hermit like she starts to withdraw and out of that she becomes grumpy she becomes kind of a bitch you know she so this toxicity starts to brood and i thought the show was just it, it very beautifully uh demonstrated that you know just visually and i just thought it was very well written i thought it was beautifully directed i thought the actress herself was very good at performing that. And I was very impressed with those very nuanced moments. It also deals with, you know, real struggles, like particularly family struggles. Okay. So, um, you know, as young women dealing with a very immature mother or a mother who was obsessed with the son and not necessarily the daughter or, you know, parents who were very negligent, uh, uh, you know, so it just deals with all kinds of issues around parental kind of um, struggles. But it also deals with dating life. Okay, so there's this one character that um, that Seungyeon plays that is, her name's Chung, Chung Yeun in, in the show. And she is dating a very insecure man, right? Who is also a college student, but he goes to a different school. And his hang up is that his girlfriend goes to a more prestigious university than he does. And he hates her for it. You know, he's like so insecure about it. Like she'll come over to his apartment just to say hello. And he'll be like, 
oh let's have sex and she'd be like i can't i'm on my period and he'll be like well why the hell did you come over then you know like he's just such an asshole right such an asshole and you know it's one thing if you write a male character who is just a blatant asshole but you're not intimately involved but it's another and a lot more in some ways realistic if you show a character who is very very toxic but the the other character is very like emotionally attached to him right and um that is a very common experience among young college women right that's something i definitely went through multiple times in my 20s so i understand that feeling and i was so glad that a show like this was visually showing us that okay i don't have much else to say about this show i just think it's very well written i i really strongly recommend it the guest that I'll be talking to today is LJ Kim, also known as Yoo Kim. Like I said, he is getting his PhD in ethnomusicology at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. He's a really brilliant guy. I really always enjoy talking to him because he's smart. He's well-read. He's always interested, you know, he's like interested in pop culture. Um, and, you know, he's like, he's like very open-hearted. I mean, he's very like connected to his emotions and very sensitive. And I really appreciate that about him, you know, because uh, like a lot of the times when you get academics, like there's so much there's so much up like up in their heads and they're like very driven politically. But, you know, for as long as I've known LJ Opa, he's been a very considerate person you know like i mean like he read my book when i wrote my novel like almost 10 years ago and i published it he read it and he like told me like gave me feedback you know he read my other books um he's somebody that i you know consider a dear friend i appreciate him and you know he's just a joy to talk to always so um yeah let's talk to lj how are you, Opa? It's been a minute. I haven't seen you in a while. No. I I feel like I see you all the time though, like because I watch you. <laughs> you you too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we haven't seen each other for a while. I mean, in mm -hmm. in person and even Zoom. Although mm -hmm. I feel like I see you every every other week or something like that. <laughs> Um, how, how are you coming along with your, with your own work? What is ethnomusicology, first of all? How do you say that? It's like a, you know, it, I used to say like it's a, it's a music, study of music in cultural context, which is not mm -hmm. entirely so bad, but it actually can be more than that also, like if you can um, just, you know, it's like in the, the music uh in the point of music making for you know mm -hmm. like um as done by human beings basically so yeah so it's 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 like anthropology plus anthropology plus musicology so some mm. some um some ethnomusicology departments is actually in anthropology department some some mm -hmm. places but i mean usually they're in music music uh, school but then still um, mm -hmm. it's it's just kind of in between and also like soci sociology as well no i think your field is so interesting your field is actually very similar to my field in that it's highly interdisciplinary 
-hmm. It's very Mm -hmm. difficult to really narrow down what my field is because it's very broad um, and it's very new. And I feel like your field is similar in that it's highly interdisciplinary. It's very broad. I'm sure there are numerous methodologies. Um, Yeah. So your your field fascinates me. Do you know uh, uh, Timothy Taylor? No, I don't think so. Unfortunately, he's over at, at UCLA. His wife is Sherry Ortner. Oh yeah, um, she's famous. <laughs> oh yeah, she's very famous. Yeah, yeah. He's married to her. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, he's also he's like an ethnomusicologist um, oh. of some sort. Yeah. He wrote this great book called Sounds of Capitalism, and mm. he examines like early radio jingles. And uh, what that meant, like how that shaped consumerism in America. It's really a fascinating study. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, um, he when he came in to talk about his book, like in one of our seminars, he mentioned uh-huh. uh, his wife, Sherry Ortner, about 30,000 times. <laughs> we were like, uh, obsessed with your wife much? <laughs> There's mm-hmm. there's a this uh recently uh became a faculty there in in UCLA is a Catherine Inyoung Lee I th- believe mm-hmm. that's her name like I th- I mean she her name is Catherine but mm-hmm. last name I think is Lee but uh okay. she's she also kind of um she's a definitely ethnomusicologist and she studied. Mm-hmm. Uh, her research was on like a samunlori and kimdoksu stuff. Oh. So like she and she's she's very good writer as well. So like, yeah. Good for her. Okay. Or she was in UC Davis before. Uh, yeah. I, I, no, UC Riverside, and then she moved to UCLA recently. So. Oh, okay. Cool. Thanks for mentioning her. I'm fascinated by um, Korean like traditional music. Um. My, I would say, like, I was just thinking about this yesterday, and let me see if you agree. Um, when I listen to pansori, mm-hmm. it feels the feeling I get is very similar to how I feel when I listen to hip hop, because mm. pansori has this sort of um, empowered kind of vocalization and lyrics. It's like konbangja, you know. But not mm. like it's not a turn off kind of kanbangja. It's like right. I feel good. I feel enhanced. My ego feels mm-hmm. enhanced. My awareness and my consciousness feels excited. You know, so it's kind of yeah. like watching like hip hop artists to an extent. You know, like when they're flashing, like their jewelry or right. their whatever like whips they have or houses they have. It's like that kind of enhanced ego like puff up you know but that empowerment you Mm. know kind of like i'm dope like i got dope shit i'm the shit you need to listen because i have a story to school you on and Mm. pansori has that same exact kind of gusto about it and i feel it like viscerally when i listen to pansori live you know or like korean drumming live it's very Mm. like I I cannot like 
like when I heard um, like live like Korean drumming, it was like children were doing it. They were just doing the like the big. I don't know what the drums are, but it's like you stand and it's like this. There's like right. a big, you know, barrel drum, and they're just hitting it with the two sticks. And there were just children, like middle school kids, doing this. But I was sitting in my seat, just like my whole body was like crunched mm. up like this because I felt right. so much like like rhythmic vibrations and intensity mm. you know like when i was younger i would have similar reactions to like when i listened to pansori even i didn't understand it but i would be like my eyes would just be shit sorry my eyes sorry. would just be like in tears you know i would feel so emotionally moved and riveted when i was younger and uh yeah, like, I mean, how would you explain this kind of visceral impact through Korean music? I, it's, it could be something that a lot of Koreans can kind of uh, uh, feel as well, because uh, when, I mean, before studying ethnomusicology, I was actually, you know, studying more traditional Korean music, um, mm -hmm. doing studying composition and but then the first time I got in although I didn't really have any background before I was very moved when I um, saw this drumming concert it's uh, it was actually uh, this done by um, Kim, Kim Young-tek Sanseinim she he's he passed away but he was like a one of the masters in um like a good good uh, dan so like a mm. shamanist Mm -hmm. uh, this kind of uh, uh, the percussion genre. Mm -hmm. So rather mm -hmm. than like a kind of more contemporary like Kim Dok style, but he was more like mm -hmm. traditional stuff. And you know, he was just like he was, yeah, he was just doing his own thing in this on the stage at the Kugagwan. And uh, I was just watching it in the front front row. I mean, he mm -hmm. was with his band basically, like a um, Gengari. Um, mm -hmm. He was he was on the the small like hourglass changu, but it's a, it's actually a smaller size for Dongyeon mm -hmm. Bersinku. Uh, it's like a kind of done in a east coast coastal area of the Seoul, uh, of Korea, and mm -hmm. he was just kind of like out of this world, you know. Like he mm -hmm. just kind of was in his own world, and and mm -hmm. suddenly this uh, little kid, um, like maybe like four years old, start he he was in the front row just probably like maybe uh, just in front of me or something he start mm -hmm. start dancing jumping around mm -hmm. you know in front of them like crazy and he was just mm -hmm. so excited also you know and just watching that like i could actually get into that feeling also and mm. it was it was amazing it was just and you know pansori i always had that kind of you know the really hip kind of feeling about pansori it's like mm -hmm. you know i used to i used to think when i when i was younger like when i listened to pansori it's i would say it's just kind of boring and it's just it didn't mm -hmm. really do much but when i start getting into it it's just it was so much fun you know there was all this kind of you know storytelling mm -hmm. and and all this you know emotions crossing and just mm -hmm. with the you know with it's just it was just uh, something very new and fresh and and although it's been 
it's been around for for thousands. I mean, not thousands, but but hundreds of years, right? Um, so, mm -hmm. yeah, and and there's like this. Uh, recently, there's in K-pop, there's also this kind of um, visible effort done by like a hip hop artist, or you know, like uh, to try to mix in those kind of traditional kugak element, like Augusty doing Techita. Mm. I don't know if you know that song, but it's like a Augusty is is a BTS one of the member, and he has. Mm. He's, I think he's, yeah, like BTS fans will kill me for uh, not knowing <laughs> his uh, other real name, but he uses August D for, um, uh, for, for his like a solo stuff that, and sure. yeah, this Techita is a really interesting. He kind of mixed it Techita, which is traditional marching music into uh, mm -hmm. this hip hop. And also there's like a Robbie that came out just just recently um called pom or something and there's mm -hmm. actually in the background the chorus is done by like a five pansori singers and and mm. he kind of dances to it and and he has his own verse which is very cool you should check it out pom mm. i think it's called pom yeah so that sounds amazing um, yeah yeah they're they're doing they're just kind of you know k-pop is so big these days and and Yes. You know, they're just kind of doing, trying to, you know, um, I don't know if you know who uh, Cedarbo, Cedarbo Seiji, Dr. Cedarbo Seiji is, but she's, she's yeah, like, a, yeah, she's, she's a very amazing scholar on yes Korean popular culture and, and mm -hmm. even like, you know, Korean, Korean culture in general. She's, she's, yes. um, originally she majored in like a Korean uh, dance like a, a traditional dance like a taichum mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and she's she's really uh, known for her research in uh, K-pop these days mm -hmm. and she just kind of uh, is also exploring uh, this research into um, more um, like uh, how they how they consciously use this uh, um, like a traditional elements into the Koreanness and Korean Korean K-pop and how mm. that's um, influencing the you know international audience as well it's 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 also kind of in a way the government is also promoting a lot of these as like a, their you know strategy to just um, advertise Korean Korean culture I guess and is she in uh, Vancouver she used to teach here and as a postdoctoral teaching fellow for two oh, years, okay. and and I got to um, you know meet her, and I got to actually TA her one of her class, really popular class of uh, on Korean, uh, Korean popular, uh, K-pop. Sure, and it was called yeah. Korean popular, uh, Korean popular music in context. So, she like right of, now like people like you and I um we have some weight in the market <laughs> you know what I'm mm -hmm. saying even mm -hmm. though ethnomusicology and cinema media studies as a field they're not really considered like all that important in the realm of academia because all the stem fields take all the funding and they get all priority 
But since we study Korean popular culture or Korean music, you know, I study Korean television, mm-hmm. um, there's a big demand at all yes. times for K-pop for sure, but for Korean television as well. Because for Korean TV, not a lot of scholars write about it or teach it. So, um, yeah, like in that regard, I know that I have a leg up. Yeah. So, I mean, like now's the time. We're really striking while the iron is hot. So Mm -hmm. let me ask you, um, because I I really loved your paper. Um, You wrote this great paper about um, hip hop, like feminist hip hop artists and Mm -hmm. how feminism is currently um how do we say how feminism is currently activated in korean society um Mm. among fans and among the hip-hop artists group um how certain other hip-hop artists who are cis male how they are responding to um cis female hip-hop artists and their claims of you know um social injustices right and Mm -hmm. sort of that reaction and response it's interesting it's like there's like this call out and call back and response it's in a way it's like their beef like their tension in the hip-hop sphere is almost a spectacle i mean that in and of itself is a performance that we're looking at from a distance and and that was what you were doing you were analyzing that specific tension like mm-hmm. i mean what do you think what do you think is the cause in this particular context among these male hip hop artists why do you think they grow defensive or uncomfortable or nervous at the face of women female hip hop artists compl- like complaining about um, social injustice or claiming feminist rights? Like, what makes men uncomfortable? Um, so I don't think it's uh, just a kind of inter- inside the, the hip-hop. Uh, it does, it's, I don't think it's a problem inside the hip-hop community only, but just in general, so society is uh, not so open and they stigmatize the the concept of feminism um very much and i um because just to say something like because this is a about a korean like a drama show i mean drama podcast i uh just put in the context i've been watching uh this show called madman and um it's a i think you mentioned it once in the previous podcast once and then uh, but it's like a it's it's as like a advertising agency in in the sixties in America, right? And how you know it's really um, there's a lot of misogyny going on, and and just sexism is just very prevalent in in this work. I mean, society in the general. And uh, I was watching this, and I was like, oh, this is like a Korea these days. I mean. It's Korea is definitely better than that, but then still, like, <laughs> it's not, not much. So, yeah. so I don't yeah. know. It's it. I kind of saw a lot of similarities in the work, work, you know, places, which, in in like a U.S. standards, it's it's ridiculous to see that kind of how how men treat women in the workplaces, and but then in Korea, it's 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 
more more or less more or less the same and um it's it's for older people it's actually a little uncomfortable discussing this kind of things because they are so used to that old ways right but then in a younger generation there's this kind of conversation going on through music and that's i think that's amazing i mean you know i'm not trying to criticize like a male um male artist who are i don't i wouldn't say they're mis misogynistic or anything but they just kind of follow this uh kind of uh you know like or like a regular kind of hip-hop theme where you know where like a kind of dominant man is is mm -hmm. viewed as like a some kind of one with the power and Mm -hmm. You know that's that's been going on in 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 hip hop in general. So they just kind of mm -hmm. try to follow that, but then there are uh, feminist rappers. I mean, who, rappers mm -hmm. who are vocal about this this uh, women's equality, and they're mm -hmm. trying to, you know, just kind of um, start this conversation. And I think that's just amazing. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean it's it's really interesting to see how men respond actually very diversely around these kinds of issues when it comes to the topic of feminism. I mean, I don't think it's just, you know, like a binary of just this and that, like on the one side, you have people who deny feminism and say, well, why do we need feminism? Women, women run the world. You know, what do women have to complain about? Like, when I'm at home, I have to bow down to my wife and her expectations and my daughters dictate my life. There are some men who feel that way. There are others who just feel like, yeah, we have to be on the women's side. You know, like there are men who say, I'm a feminist. I'm a proud feminist. <laughs> With men like that, a lot of women are very skeptical. They're like, what does he want? Like, you know, mm. but then there are others who just kind of, take a step back from both of those angles and say, well, you know, how do we let these ideas cohere as just a normal part of our understanding? For instance, women feel the need, the fact that women feel the need to create an idea, a concept called feminism in the first place mm -hmm. is very similar to the reason why Black Lives Matter exists as a concept. Mm. The reason why we say Black Lives Matter is because the default hegemonic expectation is that Black lives do not matter. That's just the baseline in mainstream society's thinking that is, mm. that is deeply rooted with white supremacist default mode of thinking, which is dehumanizing Black bodies, right? So to say Black Lives Matter the fact that that is necessary is in and of itself already shocking, right? Mm -hmm. um, but we have to say it because we have to actively resist the hegemonic standards, right? That's why we say Black Lives Matter. That's why we say feminism, women deserve equal rights as men because the hegemonic expectation, the default, default mode was that women are not human, Women are inferior to mankind. So women said, right, in the 
early 20th century. They were like, we're, we're, we are feminists. Women deserve equal rights, equal pay, the right to vote, the right to live, the right to not be raped, the, the right to have certain rights, right? So the fact that we have to say that is already it's like shocking and therefore it's like it, it could create some initial disturbances you know men can just feel like why are they so angry you know because to them they don't see all the injustices they just see angry angry women anger that's what they see <laughs> similar to how how a lot of um white people are responding to this movement of black lives matter they're like why are they so mad when I am just a person living my life and I'm not out here to hurt anybody. I genuinely believe that on our side, on the left side, the feminist side, the the people who are for Black Lives Matter, the people who are for all human, human rights, I believe that we also need to offer some space for the middle ground, you know, some some more um, compassionate and mindful thinking that comes with a lot of work. I don't think that's easy. Most liberals are incapable of doing it because they're all so traumatized by living as women of color, as queer people, as whatever, you know? So um, to take a step back from that initial reaction to the trauma and to say, to explain in neutral terms why we have these movements, why we have to say these things and and claim them as rights, and to say, I am not here to attack you. I am here to just stay to say that I am a human being also, and I would like for you to see my humanity just as I want to see your humanity. I think this kind of middle ground needs to expand. I'm not like Joe Rogan in the sense that I'm going to bring conservative people on my podcast and try to listen to the other side. That's not what I'm about. I am more for an actual true middle ground. The the space and area and the language in which we can have these kinds of discussions without any sense of fear. The reason why people resist those movements like feminism, Black Lives Matter, people of colors, you know, they their rights matter. The reason why they resist is because they, they're afraid of being attacked by the left. That's a mm. genuine fear. That's that's the reason why they have like, you know, what is it, QAnon and all that shit, like all the conservative right wing, you know, um, internet nonsense that's happening. They spiral into that because those right wing people use the same language that, you know, our calm apps use. Oh, don't be afraid. We understand, you know, give yourself some compassion. Mm. They're using the same kind of fucking terminology, you know, that that um, Eastern spirituality to an extent uses. But to make them feel safe, they feel scarred and traumatized by the left and liberals barking in their faces, calling them racist, calling them sexist, calling them murderers, calling them whatevers. You know, I feel like antagonizing one another does not lead to productive conversation. How do we expand the middle ground, an, an actual true neutral middle ground, where feelings of safety can be for everybody, not just the victims of white supremacy and misogyny and patriarchy, but also the victims of the people who thought that those were just regular normal tools in society, mm. which they were. They were normalized for them. 
white supremacy was normalized for them. Patriarch was normalized for them. They didn't know that those were tools of violence and colonization. I mean, mm. people who don't go to college don't have that, you know, understanding. They just thought that those were normalized tools. So I feel like these kinds of areas of discussion need to expand increasingly. But I think that's hard for a lot of liberal people, again, because of the trauma, <laughs> the trauma of the Trump administration. Right. I mean, I I heard from um, this podcast. Uh, it's it was a I think he's a psychology professor in Yale or his name is Steve mm. Reisner. Um, mm. And he said something about how liberal people are actually also very scared of of what's going on. So they don't want to really kind of express their opinion as well, because they're just kind of scared how they're, you know, like, especially after Trump era, it's just, mm -hmm. it's a whole, you know, to expressing things is, is actually even saying Black Lives Matter is, is in a way, um, kind of risking their, their security. And yeah, so like he was actually saying that we don't do much you don't do you know we we can do even more but but people are just kind of scared and they're just kind of always in the in the house because of covid they're they're just so afraid of mm -hmm. going out i mean conservative people just they they didn't care about like wearing masks or whatever mm -hmm. but but even liberal people they're just kind of in the in the room they're like oh i'm so scared to go out you know mm -hmm. there's riots going on and yeah just yeah. whole just i definitely agree with you uh on just expanding this middle idea middle ground and i mean i i used to i mean i always kind of thought of myself as leftist or mm -hmm. um you know liberal person but then mm -hmm. i've been recently kind of thinking it's it's just kind of you need to hear the both sides of the story as well you know mm -hmm. it's just it's it's good to kind of have different pers perspectives you know like mm -hmm. um you cannot just kind of entrapped in your own mm -hmm. sense of righteousness and but mm -hmm. you have to see what really the world is like and why are th there this you know these problems that mm -hmm. that bothers you and but if you don't look at the other side you cannot really you know see that you you're just always be angry and you know, yeah. that's all you can really do, you know? Yeah, the feeling of anger is what gets to me because I don't like feeling angry. It's my it's one of my least favorite feelings. Mm -hmm. Um and that's why hip hop and pansori for me feels so cathartic and wondrous for me because that's the space when your anger is totally and utterly valid. Pansori is so badass, you know, like when I listen mm. to a woman, you know, schooling me on how it was back then <laughs> with that guttural vocal, you know, and with the the male, you know, the man who's playing the the puk, the, the changu, like in front of her and like they're doing the callback and response. Right. And it's so fucking badass. You know, I'm like, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am school me on this shit like fucking whoop my ass i'm here for it you know 
that is like where righteousness, self-righteousness, that anger or that passion, it's passion. That's when it's like, yeah, it's appropriate. It's safe. You know, it's like we know what what this is. We're in the liminality of music. And it's like it's a wonder, you know, I, that I feel like that's where healing happens, you know, and Grace Lee Boggs said this and I, I always mention this wherever I can. But, you know, in her last book, right before she passed away in like I think it's called the New American Revolution or the Next American Revolution. She wrote this like in the early 2000s. She was like all the protests and activism that we did in America and she was part of the civil rights movement. She was like, they're ineffective. She said this. She said this years ago. She was like, they're ineffective. You marching on the streets, you tweeting, it's ineffective. And then she was like, we need to revolutionize the way we protest. And she said, the way we do that is by growing our souls. That's the quote, grow our souls. How do we grow our souls? She said art. You know, Mm. that was the answer. You know who else said art? Bell Hooks said that. She was Mm. like, art counts. Bell Hooks said that. So it's like, well, there you go. There's our fucking answer. What is more neutral than art, right? Like when I'm writing in my journal, you know, I there's a lot of anger there. There's a lot of, you know, disappointment because I'm, I'm writing out a, a narrative. It's in a linear sentence structure. I'm formulating my thoughts as I'm putting them down. But when I'm mm. drawing, right? Like sometimes like I'll go to the park nearby. I'll like, you know, smoke a joint and then I'll just, you know, draw in my sketchbook for several pages. Mm-hmm. There's nothing more neutral than that. I'm still expressing myself. I'm communicating my feelings. I'm putting them down on a page, but they're not in words, you know? So my thoughts are not, as you say, trapped in a certain kind of feeling, it's a lot more neutral and fluid than that. And, you know, there's catharsis there. Yeah, it's it's interesting you say that because um, I kind of think art, I mean, you, you're specifically mentioning uh, art as like a drawing or a painting, but art, it can be just kind of creation, creating process, you know, creative process. Yes. So I think writing for you could also be some kind of art and just, you know, writing journal. I think that's that's a really something that easy everybody can do uh, is process mm-hmm. of art that, that a lot of people can do. And I, I've been, you know, trying to write a journal every day these days. And mm. I, I, I didn't do this before. And it's mm. just kind of, organizing these thoughts in my head you know throughout mm-hmm. the day that's very helpful and and also i i actually wanted to mention this uh this there's this book um i recently read called uh, mm. uh in the realm of a hungry ghost um written mm-hmm. by dr gabor mate and mm-hmm. he's like a hungarian canadian uh, a doctor and he worked he actually is I'm I'm in Vancouver right now and he's um he there are I mean Vancouver you know like everybody thinks it's such a great city to live in and most beautiful one of the most beautiful cities in the world mm-hmm. um but there are some parts of the city um that's very it's called like Hastings East Hastings area there's a lot mm-hmm. of uh, drug addicts there and they're just mm. you know it's like it's a it's a generally 
uh, you know, a part that you want to kind of avoid going by mm-hmm. yourself or mm-hmm. or walking there. But then uh, this guy, uh, this doctor, worked in a clinic in 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 there for years, and he he kind of treated this uh, uh, these addicts and uh, very heavy narcotic addicts, um, and a lot of them passed away uh, during the time. And you know he kind of he helps them to recover, but just kind of sustain their lives there as well. You know, it's just mm-hmm. and he by studying them he kind of realized that there are always kind of this pain inside their their childhood or there there's some kind of a deep deeper pain that's always be bothering them so it's not addiction that's bad the addiction is kind of um the sense of uh uh tool like a you know that's how to deal they they use their addiction to deal with their pain and you know emotional mm-hmm. pain that that's coping mechanism there right mm-hmm. and uh, so he's saying that you know the addiction could be th- that's a, like a kind of extreme case of addiction but then mm-hmm. there are a lot of people have different all different kind of addiction like shopping addiction gambling mm-hmm. I mean you know gambling and like a drug alcoholic mm-hmm. is they're they're definitely food. severe ones but then yeah food yep. eating disorder mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. or you know shopping or workaholics mm-hmm. there this mm-hmm. all kind of addictions if yes. you think it's bad for you and it's it's bad for the people around you and if mm-hmm. you can stop it that's he's saying that's all kind of sort of addiction so like yes. it's something that all humans need to kind of understand this kind of yeah. uh yeah, so like, and then he said at the end, like, you know, he's he's actually giving some, suggesting some some of the the things that that could help overcome this mm-hmm. this state. And he said the, the the most important thing is to create whatever mm-hmm. that's inside, and you know, this creative process can be actually a healing process as well as well. And mm-hmm. it's 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 an amazing book. You should definitely check it out if. I love yeah. I love that idea so much because what that what he's trying to do is generate empathy because drug addicts are highly stigmatized in this country. I mean, mm-hmm. um, I'm not a friend with her anymore, but um, we grew up together. She and I. She became a, a psychiatric nurse, mm-hmm. and she told me she was like, "I hate drug addicts." She was like, "They are mm-hmm. the most annoying patients that I get. They're so needy. They're so." they have so many excuses she was like they are the absolute worst i mean she was like they're like children you know like they need everything they're like you know they're complaining a lot i mean and it's like yeah if if you weren't able to overcome that those pains or those challenges and you always had drugs as a fallback then you never develop the tools and the social skills in order to overcome those daily challenges and whatnot mm-hmm. um what that means is they need help. They need our support as a society. Right. They need our empathy as a human race. They need our help. And to say, to expand and say that all of us are addicts to some extent, all of us, that we're, we just happen to be lucky that we're not drug addicts per se, but we are work workaholics. We are food addicts. Mm-hmm. We are television addicts. We are, you know, addicted to whatever else you know alcohol you know you know so it's like 
to say that、uh, drug addicts are losers of society or they are leeches of society to stigmatize them and to let them, you know, kill one another off or die themselves, you know, die or be homeless or whatever, is to sort of point at our own inhumanity as a society and be like. You know, we can't stigmatize them. We have just we have the same symptoms of addicts. You know, it's just our path is slightly different、yeah. from theirs. Yeah. I I I like. I mean, just thought came into my mind when you say stigmatizing the the drug addicts because、mm. I was、mm-hmm. I don't know if you are watching it or not. There there's this K K drama called Vincenzo, Vincenzo. <laughs> yeah, I'm slowly getting you know? through that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. So,、like, With Hong Junggi,、yeah, come so, on, big star. Yeah, of course.、Um, so I, we, my wife and I have been watching the the show, and there's this、yeah. uh, there's this two kind of there's one really bad guy who's like a really young sajang who killed a lot of people, and there's his younger brother、oh. who、mm-hmm. kind of um, he's he's you know he's just kind of uh. Really traumatized by his older brother, that's been you know killing a lot of people, <laughs> killing his own father and and Jesus and like the younger brother is like also kind of addicted to drugs. So there are、oh, okay. Sung Junggi and the and the um the female character, the main protagonist. They were talking to each other and they're like about oh so that's why he grew this addiction to the. Drug and because he's so traumatized,、mm. and she goes,、mm-hmm. "Yeah, but still, he shouldn't do drugs, you know."、Mm. And then it it just kind of, I was like, "What?" You know, it's like that's how he, you know, it's it's even, it's just kind of amazing how he survived through that traumatization, you know. Like, but they're they're all, you know, she was actually criticizing that he used drugs. You know what I mean? Like that's. That's very. I thought it was very Korean, you know. Like and yeah, I, I mean, it's it's not only Korean, but but still, it's definitely stigmatizing the drug itself、yeah. as it's you know, a, a it's a fear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think、um, we really need to re kind of remind ourselves where the word phobia comes from. Phobia just、mm. means fear of, right? That's why we have xenophobia. But for some reason nowadays they use the term xenophobia as like hatred of the other. Xenophobia、mm. does not mean hatred of the other; it means fear、mm. of the other.、Mm. So, fear of drug addicts. Okay, that's understandable. When somebody's on、mm. drugs, they become less predictable. Okay,、mm. their mind is in a place that is not in our realm of what we call our so-called reality. Right, our shared so-called shared reality. They're not there. So we become fearful of them, and then we say, "Well, we need to lock him up and put him in an institution, or put him in the ghetto, or whatever." And it's like, "All right, well, I mean, let's reconsider this, right? Like, like this particular Dr. Mate is doing, saying all of us are addicts of some to some extent. I think Korea also has a lot of this fear of drugs, and it comes from McCarthyism, it comes、mm. from Reagan." You know, it comes from Nixon. It comes from America generally. You know, like, and I talked about this, I think, a couple episodes ago with、uh, Hayeon Park when I said that、mm-hmm. hemp grows all over Korea, right? I mean,、mm-hmm. when they wear the the sanbe went for the funerals, right? The what is it? Is、mm-hmm. it called sanbe? What's it called? Hemp. Sanbe. The yeah, sanbe. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. They wear the hat and the it's made of hemp. Right. So hemp grows all over right. Korea. And there is mm-hmm. no way in fucking hell. There's no way in fucking hell that Koreans did not smoke it back then. There's no way in fucking hell that Koreans did not understand hemp and its medicinal uses. There's no way in fucking hell mm. that shamans and, you know, hanbang herbal med- medicine people and acupuncturists did not understand fully and know the the benefits of cannabis and hemp. There's just no fucking way. But yeah. that that tradition has been erased much like how shamans were run underground because you know military dictators in the 70s were just like we need to modernize as a society look at america as the model america is anti hemp <laughs> they are pro alcohol they are pro hard machinery hard sciences chemicals alcohol let's go there and so this phobia of any alternative medicinal herbal drugs have just, you know, enhanced in Korea to the point where even on a show that is, in my opinion, not that great, like Vincenzo, you have this phobia of drugs. It's even in the first few episodes when they're all like, well, you know, Vincenzo somebody to be aware of because he might be linked to like drug cartels or you know, mm. gangsters and drugs in Italy, or it's it's probably drug related. And even Vincenzo mm. himself, like in the show, he's just like, oh wait, like there 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 was like some kind of drug thing coming in among the youth. He's like, oh that's no good. You know, there's this like very like um like Nancy Reagan ideology mm. embedded into Vincenzo that's like very elementary. As you say, it's like 50 years ago, right? But it's like uh, present-day Korea. But I, I don't think that's going to last, genuinely. What do you think? Don't no, you think Korea is going to catch up to the whole cannabis hype? Uh, well, that's hard to tell. I mean... Huh. It's... it's huh. <laughs> I, can, I, I have no comment on that because I still see that as... But, I mean, definitely U.S. is opening up and just they're changing all the rules. And, you know, like a Korean people love American people. So maybe they American trends. Kind of, yeah, yeah, for sure. And they might be, you know, kind of open to the idea. But I don't I don't see that happening so soon. It's. I mean, I saw a couple articles floating around last year. They were like, Seoul is trying to legalize medicinal cannabis. I did see this floating around. Mm -hmm. And I know that there are a couple um, activists, like grassroots activism that are happening in Korea around the legalization of cannabis. And the thing is, South Korea, like you say, like like South Koreans love American people. I don't think South Koreans love American people. I think that's nonsense. I think South Koreans still harbor a lot of anger towards american people but when it comes to american trends Uh, south korea is all about that like adopting trends and making it like next level south Mm. korea is so fucking good at that so Mm. i feel like once south korea gets hype with cannabis there it's going to be like k cannabis at some point it's going to (laughs) be fucking huge they're going to put fucking like all kinds of cute branding shit cool ass branding shit around it and it's gonna sell like motherfucking hotcakes there's gonna be fucking you know uh they're make, they're make, they might what, make a cannabis kimchi or something like that 
cannabis kimchi <laughs> it's gonna happen it's gonna they're gonna go to fucking like you know i'll bet you like all those like buddhist monasteries like i'm sure like they get down with the cannabis somehow and they're like we just didn't tell you guys about this shit but like you know us we monks back here yo we were getting high and there is gonna be fucking tourists like the tourism is gonna expand even more because koreans know how to how to really um how do you say handle and manage hemp in a very diverse way mm. koreans i mean it goes back to like like it right. goes back centuries in, in korea with hemp you know so like i say it's just it's the the phobia the anti-drug war that america has been so huge on right mm. especially against these ego deflators like cannabis like lsd like mushrooms mm. these are ego dis dissolvers they get rid of the ego but mm. because america has the military industrial complex they need ego enhancers like alcohol like guns you mm. know uh, like cocaine and speed and shit you know coffee 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 mm. you know so um yeah like now that now that our two best cities in this fucking country, L.A. and New York, I mean, that might be controversial, but, you know, whatever. L.A. and New York, in my opinion, are the two good ones. Uh, mm. They legalize recreational marijuana. Good for New York fucking finally. Um, but whole, yeah, whole now Canada that too. all I mean, yeah, Canada has been way like <laughs> light years ahead. When it comes to like psychedelic substances and treatment of mental illnesses, can Canada has also been light years ahead of yeah. fucking Americans. Uh, I really think America needs to grow out of this provincial mentality. Genuinely, you know, there's so mm. much, so much possibility for that evolution, mm. and it just takes. There's so much fear though here, fear of the unknown, and like when it comes mm. to substances like cannabis and psychedelics, it's that's all that it's about. It's a it's a adventurous pursuit of the unknown in your mind, in your heart, you know, and, and the, the drug anti-drug campaign from the eighties and, you know, it's been very impactful. People are very afraid of drugs and afraid of drug addicts for these reasons. And so, um, yeah, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful, but, but we'll see. Let me um, ask you about your work a little bit. Like mm -hmm. what, what have you narrowed down in terms of like your prospectus and and all this like or your dissertation like yeah yeah of course research um yeah I'm so curious. i am i am working on a korean buddhist chant called uh Pompe, writing about Pompe, and um mm -hmm. it is so it is a uh, you know like a, in a, a korean music school textbook they say Pompe is one of the three uh, Korean vocal genres along with pansori and kagok mm. and uh, you know kag yeah there Pompeii is by far the oldest tradition but then it's least kind of practiced because of this uh, 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 sacred context behind it's a religious music that's used in uh, rituals and and um yeah, so only Buddhist uh, Buddhist priests can can perform Pompeii and but it's been it's been around for for like more like more than thousand years mm -hmm. and um, and but but it's 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 unfortunate that that a lot of them is 
getting obsolete and mm. just a lot of genre because they are not able to pass this tra tradition yeah, down it's or a, it's, a, it's a oral tra transmission but then the the whole uh the the ritual these days is is getting shorter and you know they used to the the okay uh the most kind of elaborate and and kind of important uh the ritual is called yongsanje which is kind of uh recognized in, in as a like a cultural asset as well and mm. it's used to be like three days kind of three days long you have to perform mm. it for three you have to not perform but just kind of conduct it for three days mm -hmm. but then mm -hmm. the ritual ceremony and, yeah and mm -hmm. the the you know a lot of like all these people village people would come and mm. just watch and it's it's kind mm. of like i wouldn't say that's entertainment per se but then it's it is it was entertainment for them it's spectacle then, mm -hmm. right but then these days you know they 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 only conduct like a kind of demonstration Yongsanje mm. once once every uh, every year because because mm -hmm. they're des designated as a cultural asset also like a UNESCO. What's the Yongsang Yongsanje for? What is, what are they asking for when so they conduct this uh, ritual? There are all sort of chandoje, which is like a, you send uh, this uh, soul to the to, to the next life, basically. Okay, mm -hmm. um, so, so it's like a like a funeral yeah, kind of ceremony. Yeah, it's, okay. Yes, it is. And uh, mm -hmm. Yongsanje is like one of the the it's it's big, basically the the biggest uh, biggest style that you can kind of do this uh, chando ritual got it so and was so it reserved for more important people or like I mean, what um you it's it costs more money to kind of got it for for the clients to got to it perform this kind of rituals mm -hmm. but then mm -hmm. nowadays it just costs a lot of money like you know um like hundred thousand i mean not <gasps> 000, but but like i'll say like ten tens of thousands of dollars. So, oh, yeah, tens of thousands you know, makes sense. Of course. Yeah, and then yeah. they, you know, it's very time consuming, and you have to prepare yes. a lot, and mm -hmm. and the whole thing, like three day ritual was actually performed in sixties, I think, for the last time. And, and do now, the do the mudang do this, or do the Buddhist priests no, do this, no, or is it a combination Buddhist of both? Prism. No Buddhist, Buddhist priest. priest. Got it. But then got it. But then there there are a lot of uh, shared kind of common characteristics between yes uh, good performance and uh, this Buddhist ritual performances too. Got but then, it. Yeah. I think it's all kind of uh, the Bo Buddhism in Korea is also kind of syncretized with the with the, this uh, like local tradition that was there before. Yes. Right. Yes. Indigenous mm -hmm. religion and yes. So. But then it it is it is uh it is supposed to be a Buddhist ritual rather than any of the local I mean shamans involved. So uh, yeah. but then they they're doing it, you know they they have this one day ritual uh, performed. But then of course the 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 songs used in the in the rituals are getting getting shorter and. Um, they mm. basically there's no need for transmitting and learning this kind of new mm. I mean the the old like a uh, long songs that um, 
that lasts mm-hmm. sometimes more than like 40 minutes or so you know and <gasps> it's it's very he- it's a very melismatic vocal genre that you just kind of um their their texts like a chinese or a sanskrit text that's yeah one char- one one character is elongated to like oh 10 God. minutes basically so like Jesus. Very melismatic, and and there's not much uh, like a accompaniment there either. So it's just kind of chant by a, a monk, and mm. it's 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 not something you know. It's not something a lot of people in Korea could enjoy these days. You know what I mean? Like enjoy as in a, terms of both listening and performing. Um. Performing of, I mean, performing is is amazing. It's just it's really okay. how they make this produce this sound, um, and how it's it's a it's it's just masterful that what they do. But then, okay. in terms of you know like this kind of logistics and oh like you know people are just so busy these days and just yeah. um, when when they wanna. Uh, clients when 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 someone a relative or their parents uh father dies and when they want to um when they request this uh ritual they want to i mean they want to do it as nice as possible but they they don't want to mm. do it for like three days or one day even you know they okay probably want to keep it in a couple of hours and, and oh my god yeah <laughs> i mean i don't it's 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 what it is. It's it's really you know you cannot. So really... they want the fast food version of it rather than sitting <laughs> through the four hour, eighteen course meal at per se. I get it. I mean, I wouldn't say that because it's it's very, it's 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 an inevitable change that that needs to happen in a way, and mm. you know, like with the, you cannot really stick with this old, you know, longer version because. They need to, you know, they need to kind of cope with the the changes in the society. And I mean, they as a as a Buddhist priests, they need to mm. um, understand what's what's good for the. I mean, what's what's what works the best. That's right? true. Yeah, so adjusting. I'm, I'm just kind of basically my my uh, my dissertation focuses on the con- contemporary, like these kind of aspects that how. It okay. is changing and how it is practiced by, by uh, this. There, there are also younger, younger priests who are yes. learning and try to practice this. I mean, you would think that it's it's only for like these older, very solemn, you know, priests. But right, you know, there no. are, there are very younger ones that, of course, who, you know, take this career. Yeah, it's that's how it that's how it always works. You know, whenever a tradition seems like it's about to die off, the younger mm-hmm. people immediately latch on because they're like, "Wait, this is a dying thing. I need to know more." You know, it's mm-hmm. like when uh, all these like Korean American filmmakers are like obsessed with making documentaries or short films about hinyas, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, because <laughs> the hinya was just a 
again, it just became a concept out of necessity, you know, when all these men went to war or died off or they would go out into the ocean and sail away and die out at sea or be gone for mm-hmm. days. The Hinyas had to feed their children. So they went diving into the ocean to get food. It's very, mm-hmm. very practical, logical. And then this became a a concept called Hinya. But now they don't need to go diving, deep sea diving to feed their fucking kids because <laughs> there's a supermarket with everything that they need, right? right? The wars are over in Korea. I mean, uh, uh, not over, but they're not fighting, you know, and then sending all their men off anymore. So this tradition is slowly starting to uh, dissipate and the younger people are like, ah, that's so Ashua, you know? I, I, we don't want this to go away because it's such a beautiful idea and now, this makes sense to to among the Buddhist community as well. Yeah, I also think there are a lot of uh, you know, it's just kind of matter of uh, there, you know, this whole thing is all just kind of um, combined with the capitalism as well. You know, like mm-hmm. if it if it makes money, it's 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 worth trying. You know, like. But I, I'm not hmm. trying to, you know, I'm not trying to criticize anything or like, you know, their their intentions are like they're they're like, you know, I I meet these uh, Buddhist priests and they're just they're really different people, you know. They're just they live in a such a different ways and they're I honestly thought that they are not as greedy as uh you know commoners. <laughs> most people they're mm. very like mm-hmm. but they still need to make living and and you know it's yes. they need to do you know uh, all um the 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 practice the buddhist practice that i'm working is it's a little different from a uh, gen buddhism in a way that gen buddhist uh which is like jogejong is kind of based on gen buddhism which is the biggest mm-hmm. A Buddhist sect in Korea, and mm-hmm. they they at first they didn't want to uh, pursue this uh, this chant and this performative kind of uh, ritual, and they wanted to just kind of keep it very minimal and and um, not so fancy with the dance and 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 you know like this parachum and um, like. Nabichum, you know, the, these are mm. these are like actual tradition, but they wanted to kind of change it into more very, um, I don't know, uh, without any kind of spectacles, basically. Mm. But then there were these uh, these Buddhist monks who wanted to kind of continue this tradition, and they were actually um, a lot of them are married, um, mm. so. They, you know, you you would think uh, Korean Buddhists uh, Buddhists are not they're they're usually uh, single and they're not married or they're which is tr- true in 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 some in most cases. But then there are those who are allowed to marry this different mm-hmm. sect, and that's where mm-hmm. uh, they uh, pursue this kind of. Uh, and and because it was actually uh, actual the followers actually wanted this more like a kind of elaborate uh, performative performative ritual uh, the ah. Jogejong is now trying to I mean they used to hire 
these uh, the monks from different sect to to perform the ritual. Got it. But then nowadays, uh, they're trying to learn it by themselves as well. So they're like a you know because there's an audience demand. Schools. Yeah, yeah. So I I think it you know today everything kind of evolves around money and and capitalism, Damn. which which is really sad. It is. But you know, it's. it's I mean. It is what it is, and you know there there's always going to be that kind of balancing that we all need to do right not just not just for the Buddhist monks themselves, I mean you know they're monks they they know what self reflection is right mm-hmm. um but also just for us as you know practicing Buddhists and just people who are observing Buddhism, we also have to keep that in mind, right it's like well. In what aspects are we following money, or are we following a higher path, a higher calling? Or are we trying to discover something new, right? Whenever we try to stray away from money, it gets a lot more challenging. It gets a lot more difficult, mm. yeah. and we're gonna be constantly told, gaslit by everybody, told that's the wrong way. That is the wrong. Why are you walking down that path? There's no path there. It's the fucking woods. You need to create a path. But that's the right fucking answer. Mm. We have to create new paths. If we keep walking down the same path over and over again, if we keep thinking the same narrative over and over again, there's no progress. There's only damage Mm. and calamity. We have to go into the woods. We have to go into the mountains. That's why monks go into the fucking mountains, right? It's a physical, mental, emotional, spiritual challenge to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, here they are integrating into urban society <laughs> with the traffic and all the vices of the city. It's fascinating. And, mm-hmm. you know, actually, if I think about that, in a way, that's, rev- that's revolutionary because, okay, maybe they're like, being up in the fucking mountains away from all these vices that's maybe that's much easier maybe the challenge is to be in society right. and to try and pursue this i mean that is a lot more challenging because the temptations attractions and vices are in your face at all times and it's pulling mm. you into that that particular current of water at all times and how do you go with that flow and yet still maintain mindfulness and oneness mm with the dharma so to speak it's that sounds just as challenging in some ways yeah so mm-hmm. I, yeah i'm actually i'm starting to see the point of what this particular sect you're talking about and what they're doing yeah i love I mean, that though the, that's mm. that's so mahayama buddhism is you know you just kind of become a bodhisattva instead of becoming a buddha who's kind of transcends everything you mm-hmm. become a bodhisattva who is actually remain in the world, the secular world, and try to help um, more people to to have this enlightenment. And yeah, yeah, it's 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 in a way. I I think it really kind of goes with the idea of Mahayama Buddhism. Okay, what does Mahayama mean? Maha- so there are like two different kind of. Uh, in a big sense, there's Mahayama Buddhism and Theravada. I think is a okay. so Theravada is a is an original kind of uh, Buddhism Buddhist idea that you kind of remain by yourself and you know you have to just 
have this uh, um, hang like a uh, uh, what do you call mm-hmm. them? Like very, very um, abs- abstaining. Like you you do this mm-hmm. like by yourself, and you try to find Buddha in you in in yourself only, and there's mm-hmm. no like a sense of bodhisattva who who are kind of as as equally respectable as as buddha but then mm-hmm. they didn't become a buddha although they could have been but then they mm-hmm. stayed so they're like a different bodhisattva for like a you know, life uh, there's like a bodhisattva who governs death and mm-hmm. who governs some different things and mm-hmm. they're a very important part of the mahayama buddhism which is a concept that kind of um you you are trying to help more people more people in the secular world to be uh to go with you to this kind of um to achieve the nirvana but but therabada is kind of is is more practiced in like a vietnam i think it's a southeast asia more like a aha uh-huh. uh, right so uh like a thailand mm-hmm. uh, Vietnam and those kind mm-hmm. of Southeast Asia country, Burma, mm-hmm. but then mm-hmm. but then China, uh, Japan, Korea, I think mm-hmm. Tibet, Tibetan in in some in some sense also is mm-hmm. more like a Mahayana Buddhism. I feel like in a way you're like a Bodhisattva. <laughs> no, that's a uh, yeah, that's over. In a way, <laughs> oh yeah, maybe it is, but. <laughs> I would say, you know, with every kind of concept or claim, there are echoes of that, right? Whatever exterior echoes of that, you are one of those echoes, I would say. Because, I mean, I would say all all academics, like all scholars, right? Because, I mean, we're getting a PhD. A PhD means a doctor Mm. of philosophy. We're becoming philosophers. Philosophers are thinkers, right? We love thought and knowledge, Spiritual leaders and religious leaders are people who are part of the spirit world. You know, they are channels. They are um, Mm. mediums. You know, they are uh, teachers. You know, in in this in the realm of Buddhism, monks are monks, and we give them money because we're asking them to end our suffering as Mm. human beings. That's why we, when they come into town, we give them rice or we give them money mm-hmm, or we right. pay them for these rituals, right? Because we're saying, please end our human suffering. And uh, professors, philosophers, thinkers, we're also trying to ease suffering through theory. Mm. You know, we're trying to problem solve. Why yes. are we killing one another? Why are we discriminating against one another? Why are we unhappy? So... In a way, right? And and professors, philosophers, we're part of the secular world, right? Mm. You have a wife and you have two sons. You live in Vancouver, you know? You go hiking, you go look at the lake. Yeah. But you also teach. We work with students, right? And I feel mm-hmm. like that is the work of a bodhisattva. Well said, well said. Um, right? I... I um, the the recent podcast you did with the the it's she was a prof- professor in a, also media study Korean um, 
Chiyun An, yeah. Chiyun An, yes, that's her. That was her name. That was really, really helpful. Like to just kind of, you guys seem to have very, very. Um, it's just good chemistry in general, and you guys were. I mean, it was it was funny, but it was very informative to me because like, a uh, whole thing about you know having a PhD and this kind of new, new sort of you know academy, academia like a new field. And just, I could totally relate to a lot of things that you you were saying. It was it was great, and um, especially when um, when I was studying composition before, mm. I had to write some some music, right? And mm-hmm. when I was writing, like I was I was never sure of myself, like I was. I mean, I'm still kind of very self-conscious, I guess. But then, mm-hmm. at the time, I just didn't know what I was doing, and I was like, "Why am I doing this? You know, why am I writing? What, what's what's the point of this? Because w- mm-hmm. would anybody really like care to listen to this like later mm. or whatever?" Yes, and I was I was definitely not such a confident person. But then, mm. um, and I really felt like I was I never kind of had that I never had that that confidence of of what I'm writing but Mm. then when I kind of got into this ethnomusicology study I I I felt so happy that I was just studying about these things you know like it's just Mm. kind of knowing you know like having this new knowledge into new insights that and then I write writing papers like it's it's it was so nice you know it's it was like mm-hmm. a creative process as well similar to what yes. i was doing but then mm-hmm. it just kind of didn't matter too much anymore that other people really cared or not yeah and i was just mm. as long as if i you know if i can publish something and then maybe some random scholar will later you know, like look at this, and they just kind of use some kind of like the idea that I I wrote, mm-hmm. and that's good enough. You know, like that was, that was yes, that just kind of was very reassuring for me. And you know, yeah. like as you said, we're just kind of doing our own thing to influence other people, students, or other scholars. And I think that's that's just itself is very meaningful work, and I'm. I'm very currently very happy of what I'm doing. I'm happy to hear that. Yeah, I mean, you know, you come from a a a family of scholars, you know, like your sister's a scholar, your parents are scholars. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, I I think I think scholarship has value. Like in my I, novel, I I wrote like very I was very anti-academia and I was just like, you know, it's all nonsense. And at the time I firmly believed it, even though there was a part of me that just was kind of working things out. And, you know, I still have moments here and there where I'm just like, yeah, you know what I'm doing. It's not really necessary. You know, it's not it's not like the world is going to end if it's not here. But you could almost say that with practically anything because. Right. You know, 
you can. You can literally say that with anything and anybody. Literally, right. grab grab any doctor. I could say the same fucking thing about that fucking doctor, you know? Um, and it's just like the world will learn to adjust and move on with or without you, regardless of who and what you do. But that's why it's brave and courageous and it's activism and resistance and protest when we create art, right? Because you're filled with self-doubt. Everybody's doubting you, including yourself, right? When you're right. writing music, you know, doubting yourself and wondering right. who the fuck's going to listen to this, you know? That's why it's hard being an artist, you know? That's why most people can't pursue that career as a path because it's not even career, that path, that journey, that life. It's difficult, but... Yeah, as you say, scholarship is also a big part of that because it is creative. You know, we're formulating, we're conceiving of, we're we're imagining the world in a different way. We're creating a blueprint for our society to an extent. And I, I, that mm. is a creative process. I'm so yeah, happy so that you feel I, comfortable there. Yeah, I definitely think um, it's, it's, it was, it was the problem with the uh, composition. It was just a problem with myself that I, didn't enjoy what I was doing, basically. I mean, oh, okay. yeah, so, I mean, maybe, I mean, that it's definitely com compli more complicated than that, but then sure, it, it could, as you said, it could be, it could, you know, I could have just as happy as composition if I was just myself, like I could have been this state right now and, and you know, mm -hmm. Because I feel like I just kind of found what I really like to do, and just whole thing just kind of. Um, there's this uh, saying by Paulo Coelho, um, in the Alchemist, mm -hmm. that when you want something, like the world, whole world conspires to 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 achieve this. And I I feel like it's just kind of doing that for me because mm -hmm. I really want that instead of I'm like doubting myself and just having mm -hmm. all this kind of what if what if you know but mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. i also the the one the about the podcast with the uh with uh dr an um mm -hmm. what i liked about was that you were always kind of before i mean that's 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 okay but you're always mm -hmm. making fun of scholars and you're like oh mm -hmm. what, whatever yeah. and then but then you you were talking with dr an and you just kind of you know, you guys talked about very, I don't know, like I enjoyed the, all the podcasts before as well, but then it was just mm -hmm. a little different that I could actually relate to my current, um, what I'm doing now. And, and mm -hmm. you, you, you are very, also very, you're academic as well. So <laughs> very, that's <laughs> yeah. what you kind of realized. Yeah. We were I talking about enjoyed, pedagogy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I always enjoyed your, you know, analysis on K, K drama. Like the first time I yeah. was very impressed was when you came out in this other podcast, uh, um, Vec on Bechdel. Mm. Yeah, and then you were talking about uh, the the parasite. Mm. The, the the whole analysis was just mind blowing. You're so good. You're like. <laughs> It's, I, I watched I watched the parasite probably twice by then mm. but then I still kind of was I, I enjoyed it it was it was an amazing movie but when I heard your analysis it just 
was like became like my favorite movie ever. <laughs> <laughs> the the previous one was a Sarina Chok, but then but then Oh I Kisenjun, love that I think, movie. Yeah. I they're, love Sarina Chok so much. You know, I'll send you an article. Uh Seyoung Kim, I don't know where mm-hmm. he's at. He might be in Tennessee. But he wrote his whole dissertation about like serial killings in Korea that started cropping up in the eighties. And mm. He he wrote about Sarina uh, Chuok and the Chaser. Yeah, mm. he does some really interesting analysis. It's so fascinating. But I'll send you that article. I love yes. that movie, M- Memories of Murder. Sarina Chuok. I so love good. that movie so so much. Yeah, I would say I love Sarina Chuok just as much as I love Parasite. It's that mm. good. But Parasite's an amazing film. Like I'm still like, whoa, what an you, amazing you movie. Your analysis made it even more amazing to me. So thank you. Oh, thank you. That's so kind. Yeah, that movie was like it was a it was mind blowing for me too. Just watching it, like I was in the theater, I watched it. I went with my friend, and like after the movie, as we're walking, she wanted to talk, and I was like, "Can you shut the fuck up? Like, why are you talking to me right now? I have to go home and just sit by myself, you know, and just let the experience move me. Just shut up. Like, I just drove home immediately." And then, like, after a month, I texted two of my Korean-American comedian friends, and then we went mm. to see it together. Mm. Um, and it was just as fun. But, yeah, and, you know, if, if, a, if a work of art like that is that good and it has that much meaning, then mm. the scholars have just as much fun with it. We are going to sit and talk yeah. about it and philosophize about it all day, every day, you know? And, uh, yeah. Yeah, you were, all of these you were are talking just, about how to make you know how to kind of write about these things and this that you know with with dr an and then that yeah. kind of you know i could sense that uh, a, a scholar in you that's that was really nice oh yeah no th- i mean the <laughs> the scholar in me is is a, it's a part of me i cherish very deeply you know mm. actually maybe I'll, I'll, you'll find this funny when i was in uh college right so mm. i would it, i started going to college in 2005 2005 I started going to college and I went to Hunter College initially in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um it's a city college. It's a it's a great school. It used to be an all women's college and then they made a co-ed and oh, then the quality okay. of the school went down. <laughs> the men ruined it. <laughs> as a as a former composer and a ethnomusicologist, what do you think of the um intro music on my podcast? Oh, I love it. It's nice. It's very um <laughs> Is it is it like a is it Korean? It's like it's a, like the da, it's like the da, school bell da, sound. Da, da. School yeah. bell is like a Korean. It's a Korean school bell, or is it used all over this, all over the world? That or school like, bell was it's it was invented in England. It was the Westminster chime, oh. and it's the chime that they use on the Big Ben clock. Okay. And uh, oh, Korean schools okay. adapted it for their school bell. Mm. yeah interesting yeah so uh yeah, I, it's it, it's i mean i i i would have you know if you asked me i would have gladly you know like composed theme music or something but but that was just perfect and i couldn't really you know <laughs> thank I you say like oh you should use my music or something. <laughs> it's very fitting. where did you get that i got it from i hired somebody to do it no, but this was um this was really great 
uh, chatting with you. I always enjoy talking to you. Um, you know, you and I go back a long time now. You know, I've known your sisters for a long time as well. You know, I love I love your your family. I think your family's amazing. And um, thank you. Yeah, we'll we'll continue to have these chats. I'm actually going to be in New York next month. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe that's, I'll reach out to your sister. I was like, oh, Miru, Miru isn't there. Then you're like, no, I was talking about your older sister. Yeah, right. Yeah, I know Miru's in Mexico. <laughs> Have you been there? Yeah, I visited your sister like 2017. And she and I also went to Mexico oh. City once before that, before she moved to Mexico as well. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, I loved yeah, Mexico. I, need, I definitely need to visit her sometime soon. Oh, it was so wonderful. I loved um, Mexico. Yeah. yeah. And your sister is very fluent in right. Spanish now, too. So that's like really amazing. Yeah. When she and I first went to Mexico, like I was using like my fucking middle school Spanish and that's all we had. <laughs> and then literally like a couple, like a year or two later, your sister was just like talking with all the locals. Like, you know, she, she adapts uh, fast. Yeah. She impresses me. Yeah. She's, she's very, very talented. She's, she just kind of whatever she gets in, you know, into, she just does it. I feel like. That's her she talent. falls into it full on. Yes. Mm, for sure. All right, this yes. was lovely. Well, thank you for doing it. Yeah, I'm glad uh, you're you seem to be doing well and and yeah. I love seeing your uh your face and your hearing your voice every week on your podcast is is amazing. Thank you. And uh keep up the good work. Thank you. And I'm rooting for you too. It was honor to be on the on your show. It's honor honor having you, and thanks for sharing your research. I am really looking forward to reading your dissertation, eventual book. It sounds extremely fascinating. I am genuinely excited for you. Thank you. You guys, next week I'm going to talk about the show Reply 1997, which is an amazing show. And the guest is also amazing. Um, it will be the last uh, guest that we have to celebrate AAPI Heritage Month. So thank you for all of you for tuning in and helping me celebrate AAPI Heritage Month. And you guys, like, I don't know, I just kind of promote this every every May, I suppose. But I did write a novel. I wrote it when I was in my early 20s. It's called Delhi Ideology. And it's about... Uh, me um, or my character working at a deli, a New York City deli, as a cashier. And the experiences that that cashier had working in Manhattan as a millennial who had recently graduated college into a recession. Check out that book if you haven't. Uh, you can buy it on Amazon. You can get it as a, as a paperback or you can get it as a Kindle but it is available for purchase on Amazon. So there you go. In any case, you guys, this was a fantastic interview. This was a fantastic episode. Thank you for tuning in. Um, I am so happy that you guys are my listeners. Thank you for being my listeners. I appreciate every single one of you. Thank you. If you have questions for me or just a comment, something nice to say, 
I'm all ears, man. I read my emails. Just email me, kdramaschool at gmail.com. And you can, of course, subscribe on YouTube, okay? Please subscribe on YouTube. Oh my gosh, if you're listening, subscribe on YouTube. I need them. I need the subscribers, okay? Subscribe on YouTube, Kdrama School. You can also follow me on TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram at Kdrama School. I love you all. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. I'll see you all next week. <laughs>